Josh. I'm the pastor here. It's great to be with you. Been uh, on paternity leave for a while, so this is the first week back in the saddle. And I uh, missed y'all, Miss preaching. Glad to be here. Um, it's the most wonderful time of the year, and it's the most wonderful most wonderful time of the year for Camille and I, because we've been cozied up with our new baby, uh, John Christian, who's here. First time going to church. He's been uh, a slacker pastor's kid, skipping church the last few weeks. Uh, but now he's here, so you can introduce yourself. Wash your hands first. Um, is my mic on? Yes? Okay. Well, we're uh, beginning our Advent series here, uh, and it's called Fear Not. And as I was considering what to preach on during Advent, which, to be honest with you, is kind of a little bit of a strain as a pastor. It's like you have to do the same text every year, and you know, how do you make it fresh, and uh, can you make it fresh, and is that the point at all. <laughs> but one thing that I saw that I, I thought was really interesting is every time that the birth of Jesus is proclaimed, it comes with an admonishment to fear not, to do not be afraid. And so we're going to look at all the times that angels showed up and said, fear not. And, we're going to, and it's really cool because it fits right into an outline where we see why they say fear not. We see how the good news of God silences that fear, and then we see what people do in response to that. So we're seeing the why, the how, and the what of the fear not message that comes around this time of, Christ, uh, of Christmas. It's pretty amazing, really, how the pattern plays out. And one thing that was encouraging for me as I've set the series up and studied it is that the fears surrounding the birth of Christ, I think, are all fears that you and I deal with all the time. And to, to be honest with you, when I was a, a younger man in ministry, I kind of would always groan around Christmas time because it seemed like this season where all these glorious truths of the gospel, these life transformation, life transforming realities that come from knowing God, are kind of put on the shelf. So we can talk about mangers and starry nights and stuff. And so looking at the series and this theme of fear that is spoken away from in the announcement of Jesus, it was really encouraging that the birth of Christ, Advent, the coming of God with us, is a huge opportunity to see in the nitty-gritty, in real life, in real normal people, how the gospel affects, how the coming of Jesus into people's lives affects them and how they respond. So my hope is that this year, we wouldn't put God on the shelf until all the cookies are decorated and the presents are wrapped, but that this Christmas season would be one where we receive the gift of less fear. We receive the gift of the birth of Christ, the incarnation of our King and Savior, and how that silences the fear that's in my heart that's in all of your hearts. Today, we're looking at Mary. Apologies to Eric. I think there is a typo in the bulletin about the, the sermon text. So, but all, all scripture reading is good. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to look at, uh, at the story of Mary, Mary getting the news that, hey, newsflash, you're going to be the mother of God. Kind of a big, a big message. So let's dive in. Uh, we're looking at Luke 1, verses 26. This is on page 1588 in the Pew Bibles. Uh, it's not going to be on the screen, or maybe it is. Oh, hey, how about that? It is. Uh, 1588 in the Pew Bibles, if you want to follow along. I'm just going to look at verses 26 through 30 on the front end here. In the sixth month, 
the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city, to the city, a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man who was Joseph, in the house of David, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, "Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you." But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, "Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God." So to set the scene a little bit, Mary would have been probably a teenage girl, not much older than that in the culture then, as they were betrothed young. And she, Nazareth was a nothing town. It was like a sophomore in high school in Everett getting an angel of the Lord appearing, appearing to her and saying, you have favor with God. The angel shows up and says, you are highly favored to this this." teenage girl, engaged teenage girl in a, in, in a dumpy town. No offense to Everett. Let's be real though. And what I think is so interesting is we see how God assigns value. We see God's economy in this. He doesn't show up to some accomplished, professional, articulate go-getter. Someone who's mature and has a lot of influence, a lot of Instagram followers. He picked Mary. He favored her. And I think we'll see shortly the reason why is because of her heart towards him. The posture of her heart towards God. The angel said, do not be afraid. Fear not, Mary. Why? Well, he says, he says it again. You have favor with God. And so the why in our, in our outline, I want to see why the, the word fear not comes around the announcement of Jesus is because God's favor casts out fear. First John says it like this, perfect love casts out fear. The reason Mary is given to not be afraid when the celestial being bursts into her home is because the God of the universe looks upon her with favor. If you hear nothing else this morning, hear this, God's favor casts out fear. God's favor casts out fear, knowing that God is for us. He looks upon us kindly. For those of us who are in Christ, He's not frustrated or disappointed in us. Right now, not a future version of you, right now, God looks upon you in Christ with favor, with kindness and love. God, God's favor casts out fear. And we see the result of this favor in the next verse. Look in verses 31 through 33. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The favor of God results in Jesus coming to her. She's going to have a baby, and that baby will be the eternal king of everything. Why is Jesus coming that big of a favor? I feel like if you uh, are unfortunate enough to watch televangelists or TV preachers, you might think that God's favor has four wheels and a Mercedes logo on it, or uh, your illness magically going away. But we see in Scripture, the, the favor of God is displayed in God being with us, an intimate relationship with God. It's not stuff or the prosperity gospel. And we see that Mary has favor with God and she gets to be with Jesus. 
she was the mother of Jesus, so she was with Jesus in kind of a special way. We don't get to be the mother of Jesus, but God in his mercy and grace, he looks on us with favor. And the result of that favor is that we can actually experience the presence of Christ in our lives. We can be with God intimately. This is the favor of God. I think this experiencing the favor of God, the, the, the grace of God towards you in Christ is the work, the primary work of being a Christian. Because there's this terrible dynamic that can play out in Christian circles. I know it happens in my heart. I'm sure it happens in our church. And it's, we get confused about the difference between trusting God and His favor and pleasing God. Trusting God versus pleasing God. When we don't really believe that we have favor with God, we try to earn it by pleasing Him. Do these things to please God. We perform for Him to earn His favor. And listen to how sneaky this is. We can dress it up in nice churchy language about wanting to have a pleasing sacrifice or lay our lives down as a pleasing aroma, but then it can twist into a situation where we're working for His favor. We're working for that which can only be given for free. We might use phrases like, God's done His part in saving me, now I have to do my part. Or I'm just going to try to be a little better tomorrow than I was today. That's performance language. That's living like God is over there, He saved us, gave us a get-into-heaven card, and now here we are to do it. Here we are to, to make it happen or to earn it or to prove that He didn't waste his salvation and grace on us. This is performance, and it's so sneaky, and, it, and it's toxic to the heart of a Christian. It's toxic to a church. If we can just, so every Sunday, every New Year, we say, This is the week. This is the year. I'm going to please God. I'm going to get his favor. I'm going to kick this sin in my life that's been there for years. But week after week, year after year, we're still overweight, we're still anxious, we're still addicted to porn, we're still afraid of talking to non-Christians, ambivalent towards the Bible, with just this kind of bag of guilt on our shoulders, just imprisoned with shoulds and oughts. These things seem like they should be automatic for Christians, so why is it so hard for us? But that is the way of striving to please God. It leads to a very stressful, anxious, busy, exhausting life. The alternative, praise Him, is trusting God. That's the way of Christ. That's what the Gospel says. We can trust God that in Christ, He's for us, period. He's for us the way you are for your child. Whether they've pooped their pants or colored all over the walls, you're for them. He's for us on our worst day. Whether we're powerful and influential, or we're the perfect mom, or we're a teenage girl in a poor little town just waiting to get married. Even on our worst day, God looks at us with favor in Christ. Because in Christ we are dressed in His righteousness. Can we trust God that is true? Trusting God, we will see the posture of Mary's heart. Look with me at verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am virgin, a virgin? 
Her response is one that sees the impossibility. This is the fear that we're looking at today. Mary versus the impossible. She says, you're telling me I'm going to have a baby? That can't happen. I'm a virgin. There's some practical things that need to happen before I can have a baby. You'll notice that Mary's quick to, to notice her limitations. And that might seem obvious to you. It's like, well, yeah, if you aren't married and are a virgin, you're not going to have a baby. But we see God promising children to other people in Scripture, and they take matters into their own hands. He promises Abraham that he will be the father of many sons. And many sons had father Abraham. You know that song. But his wife, he and his wife, they got tired of waiting. And so they took matters into their own hands. They did not, like Mary, embrace their limitations. And so Sarah gave her maid ser- servant Hagar to Abraham. And she conceived. And um, now there's kind of like two wives, concubine situations, and two kids. And, and there's, it's causing problems in our world today. We don't have time to talk about that. But whenever we take matters into our own hands, when we don't trust God, Things always go very, very bad. And here's the thing. Taking matters into our own hands, can, we can also, often dress it up like pleasing God. I'm going to go and do this. I'm going to go and make it happen so that God will be pleased with me instead of trusting God to do what he said he will do in us and through us. This past week, I read uh, a, a definition of religion that I thought was, was pretty good. It says, Nothing defines religion quite as well as a bunch of people trying to do impossible tasks with limited power while bluffing to themselves that it's working. Nothing defines religion quite as well as a bunch of people trying to do impossible tasks with limited power while bluffing to themselves that it's working. Impossible tasks with limited power. There's a couple of things about the Christian life in here. One, living the Christian life according to Scripture is impossible on our own strength and human, human power. Apart from God working in us, growing us to be more like Christ, it is impossible. And I feel like there's got to be someone who has this on a t-shirt or a coffee cup, but it's a relationship, not a religion. We say that all the time about Christianity. It's, it's not a religion. It's a relationship. And if that's true, that means that it's fundamentally based on uh, trust of God, and trust in God in the gospel. There's the difference between trusting and pleasing God there. Is that Mary quickly says, I can't do it. How is this going to happen? Mary could have said, okay, I'll get right on that and rush your marriage with Joseph, or who knows what she would have come up with. But she's quick to embrace her limits. Look how Gabriel responds with the power of God. Look in verse 35 through 37. And the angel answered her, The Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived, and this is the sixth month with her and is, is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. So the how of her outline, 
How does the, the good news of the gospel cast out the fear? That God will do it. You have favor with God. Jesus will be with you, and God will do it. How does the birth of Jesus address our fear of the impossible? And the birth of Jesus, the virgin birth, shows us that with God, nothing is impossible. He even gives an example to Mary. He says, your, your, your cousin Elizabeth, who is barren, has also conceived beyond the scope of what is norm, normal that doctors would predict is possible. Mary trusts God and who he is and what he can do, which is anything he wants. And here we see the, the heart of Mary. Look in verse 38. Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the heart of trust that finds favor with God. If you want to please God, trust him. Don't perform for him. Hebrews says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Scripture actually says that if we don't trust God, if we don't have faith in who God is and what he's done for us in the gospel, that enables us to even have a relationship with him, that we can't please him. If you want your fear to go away in the favor of God, quit trying to please him, quit trying to handle it yourself, and instead draw near to him like a child and trust him. Trust who he says he is. Trust what he says he will do for you. And then we can respond to his commands like Mary did. I am your servant, may it be so. Because God is in the business of calling us beyond ourselves. Calling us to things that would seem impossible for us. And if he wasn't, he, just, he wouldn't be that much of a God. He would be like a boss or something. Giving us just you know, reachable goals. The whole point of the Christian life is to experience the presence of Christ. And when he calls us out of our comfort zone, calls us beyond what we can do in our own strength, it is a huge invitation to experience God. And while God's call in our life, God's call beyond ourselves, might look like being called to sell everything you have and move to Iraq as a missionary or something, let's look at just some real bread and butter commands that Scripture gives us. Ephesians says, Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and laid his life down for her. Man, that should sound impossible to us. If you think you can do that on your own, you're wrong. But with God, all things are possible. That means the only way for this to happen, the only way to have the heart of Christ towards our wives, is for God to do the work in our hearts, for us to surrender to God. By being quick to repent of times, we don't love our wives as we should. To be open to asking them, how can I love you better? Being willing to do things like listen, be still, ask questions, maybe go estate sailing, and not just earn money and fix problems. We see that the, the call of God on our life to 
for, for men, we'll get to one that applies to all of us, is to lay down our lives in sacrificial love for our wives. And if you're like me, there's been moments in your marriage where you're just like, I'm done. I have nothing left to offer. I don't know how to go forward. And it's in those moments that God can knit you closer to Him and knit you closer together with your spouse in that weakness and vulnerability. That's where God is strong and we are weak. Well, here's one that applies to all of us. Go and make disciples of all nations. Does that scare anyone? Anyone feel clueless and helpless and what it means to join the God of the universe in making disciples of Jesus? That's a big call that Jesus makes on anyone who would call himself or herself a Christian. None of us are exempt. What I want us to see is that the favor of God kills our fear when we face these impossible tasks. The impossible task of being a Christian on our own. We don't make disciples to earn God's favor. Men, we don't love our wives to, be, uh, to earn God's favor. We already have God's favor. And God gives these humanly impossible calls on our life after He saves us, after He covers us in His steadfast love and calls us into His family. He doesn't call us to anything that He's not equipped us to do or promised to do through us. We see that God's gospel is that in Christ nothing is impossible with God and that silences Mary's fear. Now let's look at what Mary does in response. Flip over to uh, verse 46. And Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord. 47 says, And my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Mary responds in fearless worship. This timid, small-town, pregnant teenager is boldly worshiping the God of the universe. My soul magnifies the Lord. I rejoice in who He is. There's 10 verses here of her song. We don't have time to go into all of it, but look in verse 49. She says, For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. We realize that Mary is an unwed pregnant teenager right now. It says Mary remained with uh, Elizabeth three months in a different town, presumably because it would have been incredibly shameful for her to hang out in her little 500-person town with everybody knowing that she's pregnant. So this unwed, pregnant teenager is boldly, fearlessly praising God. Her soul is full of joy, magnifying the Lord, because she's experienced the power of God to do impossible things. And she trusts Him. She trusts in the favor that He has towards her. This is the response of people who trust God. Who give Him space to do the impossible in their lives. God is more real. The joy of the gospel is more real, more tangible. The joy of worship is life-giving. If worship seems cold or lame or dry, if Scripture seems just trite and distant from what you're really going through, it could be that we're living in fear, seeking comfort and control in our own power. 
And if we see that, or if we are in the mindset that comfort and security comes from our own efforts and strategies, then of course Scripture is going to seem so marginal and out of touch. But if we seek to trust God, to know Him in such a way that we can trust Him, rather than trying to please Him or others or manage things with our own strategies, Scripture becomes the air we breathe. Show me yourself, O Lord. Be with me. Time with Him, time in His Word, time with His church. It's how we make it through life, not our main gig. It's not something outside of our main gig. But listen, guys, this is just an invitation. This is just the pattern we see in Scripture over and over again. Fearful, timid people experience the new, good news of Jesus Christ, that they have favor with God for free, by grace. And that emboldens them to do incredible things. After Jesus died and rose again, ascended into heaven, he had 120 uh, followers left over, and they're all scared because their leader was brutally tortured and killed. They're hiding, and then the Holy Spirit comes. God comes to them, and they bust out of the room and start preaching in the streets. The world's never been the same. You and I are in this room today because 120 people experience the fearlessness of trusting God. Unfortunately, I think Lou said this last week, God is a God of process, which is only unfortunate in the sense that we get impatient. If we could only pop the hood and take out the unbelief carburetor, you could tell I'm off script and don't know cars. Uh, That'd be great. We just had, if God was a mechanic, he just flipped the hood and fixed it. That'd be one thing. But instead, he's a gardener. He's going to cultivate and weed and prune and fertilize and our hearts to, to grow and trust. And so my application for today is simply a, a prayer. It's not a list of things to do. It's a prayer that I think uh, you, could, you could write um, somewhere that you'll see on the regular steering wheel or something. And just let it shape your heart. Ask God to shape your heart with it. It's in uh, 2 Chronicles 20. A little context. Jehoshaphat is leading God's people, and he's facing something impossible. This huge conglomeration of a bunch of different hostile armies is coming to annihilate him and his people. And instead of kicking into, into gear all the military stuff, he gathers his people for a prayer session, a prayer meeting. And in Second Chronicles twenty twelve, this is what he says. For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That prayer, just take it to the bank. We'll never outgrow it, this side of heaven. Father, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Father, I'm scared. I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. This is a great place for a Christian to be. This is, this is that childlike faith that enters the kingdom of heaven. We'll all get to that place where we don't know what to do, where life seems beyond us. It's the question of where are our eyes? Where are our eyes? 
And it's a gift from God if we can get to the place where we're beyond ourselves and let those circumstances draw our eyes up to our Father who looks on us with favor. To be in a place where, by God's mercy, we're very aware that life is beyond us and that we need Him. For me, I've been in this place with, with my anxiety. I feel ashamed to share this, but on the regular, I wake up during precious hours that the baby is sleeping, and I just can't turn it off. I just feel wound up, thinking about woodworking projects and emails to send and just silly stuff, just wound up. And I can't just reach under the hood and replace that part of my heart. So instead, I pray, Father, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Instead of just trying to distract myself, I'll, try to, I'll get up and meditate on a psalm or pray on my knees, physically being on my knees. Just sit and wait on the Lord. Maybe for you it is anxiety that you feel just stuck behind. Maybe it's this just terrifying sense of people-pleasing that's just rooted in your heart. If people aren't impressed with you, if you're not making everyone happy, then you can't sleep and you don't feel like you have a reason to live. Maybe your finances aren't great. Whatever it is, whatever is beyond us, open your Bibles and ask God to show you His favor in Christ, to grow that trust, to kill your fear of the impossible with His presence. What a gift it would be if this Christmas we could begin to experience some reprieve from the fear that we have just tried to manage and survive all our lives. What a joy it would be if regardless of money and presents and family gatherings, if our souls would magnify the Lord because God has done great things for us. We've experienced the great things that he's done for us in Christ. This is this spirit of Christmas. This is what we celebrate. God coming. Advent means the coming. This is the abundant life that Jesus gave, came to give us. He's seen our sin and our darkness and our brokenness. And God in the flesh came as a baby, born of a virgin. With, with God, nothing is impossible. Let me pray.